Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. There's a website uh, that I would like you to have a look at, and uh, you can become involved and engaged. Um, it's ps752justice.com, ps752justice.com. Families of passengers aboard Ukraine Airlines Flight 752, which was shot down by Iran using surface-to-air missiles on the 8th of January of this year, are seeking justice and uh, connecting families of more than 100 victims from Canada, England, Sweden, Ukraine, Afghanistan, and Iran. First, Iran lied about shooting down the airliner. Then they destroyed evidence within hours by bulldozing the crash site. And now they're refusing to send black boxes of the plane out of Iran. Apparently, they're saying something about COVID-19 being a problem. If you've heard the word disinfectant, you know that that's just a lie. You think about what it is my guest is experiencing and what his life is like and what he has to live with. Uh, Hamid Ismailian is a Canadian of Iranian descent. He lost his wife and his daughter to the Iranian missile attack on seven Flight 752. Ahmed, thank you so much for coming on the program, and my deepest and most sincere condolences to you, sir. Thank you, sir. You are very welcome. Thank you. I don't know how you can possibly, uh, you know, how you continue after what has happened to you, but I know that you have a significant mission and a determination for the truth to come out and for the uh, information that surrounds the shooting down of the airliner to be shared with the rest of the world. Um, if I can, t tell me if I'm correct about this. You were on a flight from Germany to Iran, and that's when you, is that when you first heard that the Iranian missiles had shot down the, pli the plane with your wife and daughter on board? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was on the flight going to Iran. First, I went to Frankfurt from Toronto. At the same day, 8th of January, it was afternoon. So I went to Germany, and then uh, I had to wait for seven, eight hours in the airport uh, it's very difficult to tell you how, how, how I was feeling. And then at the same time, the rumors were coming out because the Ukrainian embassy in Tehran first, they disclosed that that was a technical failure, but they removed that news uh, like in an hour. And then the rumors uh, started to spread in the social media that there's a, there's a mystery behind it. So then I got to the... Uh, uh, Lufthansa uh, flight to Tehran and we were at the middle of the way that uh, I was I was connected to internet and I saw on CNN that uh, Mr. Trump uh, has said something about uh, the flight that it was probably mistakenly was shut down by the Iranian uh, IRGC I mean Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and uh, yes I was on the way going there and you said something on the aircraft, did you not? You spoke out, and was your was the plane ordered to turn around? I remember that uh, you know when I as soon as I saw that uh, the flight attendant was uh, passing, and I just stopped him and I said, "Have you seen this?" And uh, he said, "Yeah, we know about the airplane." I said, "No, they shut down the plane down." And uh, uh, I remember his face that he was so, like shocked and. Uh, 
I was shocked too. I couldn't believe that. And then uh, in five minutes, I heard the pilot said uh, that we are returning to Germany. We don't go to Iran. And that might have been because you spoke out. Uh, I I don't really know uh, what was the reason because I'm sure that they you know they had they were in touch with the with the airport in Germany and probably in Tehran. But it was exactly, you know, that decision was made at the same moment. You know, after like five minutes after uh, I said that to the flight attendant, yes, I remember. But you did, uh, you did make it to Tehran. You made it to Iran. What happened when you got there? Yeah, I had to actually go back to Germany and from Germany take another flight next day to Azerbaijan and wait for a few hours there and then go to Tehran. It was a long journey. I can tell you, 72, a sleepless. Uh, days and nights uh, and uh, then I went to Tehran uh, at the same time that I got to my wife's uh, or my wife's parents house uh, it was uh, 7 in the morning on Friday uh, or, or Saturday sorry and then same time Iranian officials they announced that shameful announcement that they downed the airplane. I can't tell you how, how I, I was feeling at that moment. I was shouting, I was screaming, I was crying. Everybody in the house was in the same way. We couldn't believe what we were hearing. And uh, that at the same moment, I decided to bring my wife and my daughter back home here in Toronto. So yeah, I, I, my heart's breaking for you, sir. I. I can't imagine. I can't imagine experiencing such loss. Um, Iran first denied shooting down the plane, as as you just mentioned, and then bulldozers began to destroy the evidence of the missile attack. And then victims were congratulated for their martyrdom. That must have just made things even more um, difficult for you. Tell tell us please what it is that the PS seven fifty two justice dot com what your what your committee uh, what your association is is trying to get done what do you want to see done? Uh, lots of things, but the main thing is we need a full and independent investigation. There are lots of rumors, lots of questions regarding that crime, that atrocity. I won't call it like a crash. So. Uh, there are questions like why they kept that, the sky open that night, who ordered that like uh, air defense system dispatched from the uh, the other air defense systems that they they have like a unity or uh, uh, this this air defense system was segregated from from the army or from the IRGC as I as I heard why they put that there just five hours before flight PS7-5 to fly. And uh, lots of questions. TORM-1, that air defense system, doesn't make a mistake, doesn't see an a commercial airplane as a cruise missile on its radar. Uh, I have spoken to lots of military experts, aviation experts, and everybody says that. So I'm not an expert, but I'm just... Uh, referring to, to the comments that I've received. So if there is no full investigation, nobody can say who ordered that, who kept the sky open, and why this happened. If this is a human error, 
that they're they're saying that all you know in the media and everywhere they have to prove it. They have yes. to prove it that I was a human error. Yes, and those black boxes have to leave Iran, and they have to be sent to a to a country that will objectively investigate what is inside them and come to a conclusion based on what they find. Are you satisfied with what's been happening as far as international governments, including our government, interceding on your behalf and on behalf of the passengers who lost their lives? This black box now is a chronic pain for all the family members. I can see the frustration is growing in all the family members because black box is the first step. We compare ourselves to Lockerbie, that they had the black box in two days, MH17 in four days. Air India, 1985, they had to go to the bottom of the ocean to find the black box within 32 days. But here is 160-some days gone, and uh, I don't know, Iran hasn't complied to any of the obligations, and black boxes is the first step. We know that the black box is not the whole story. There are lots of other questions. But when they don't uh, oblige with, you know, comply with the obligation and they don't cooperate, what's the next step? That's our question right now. Right. Well, I hope that our listeners across the country will go to the webpage, ps752justice.com. That's ps752justice.com. And that's as in flight 752. Add your voices, add your, uh, your weight of opinion to what is being attempted by the families of the victims on the plane. And, uh, and let's get the answers for these families as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, Hamid, thank you very much for joining us. And, and again, um, deepest condolences to you, sir. And, and I hope you get the answers. At the very, very least, you deserve that. Thank you very much, Roy. Thank you. I hope. Yeah. Take care, sir. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Hamid Ismaili on... So it's uh, PS, your heart just breaks, ps752justice.com, uh, ps752justice.com. There's been a lot of talk, and I've had a number, quite a few emails on the issue of sexual harassment, and specifically about Marwan Tabara. Now, we're not going to be able to talk about Mr. Tabara's criminal charges. They have been laid, and once a criminal charge is laid, we just don't touch it, because you want to make sure that people have a fair trial. But there is the question about whether Justin Trudeau was aware of the content of a Liberal Party of Canada investigation of a sexual harassment allegation against Marwan Tabara prior to Tabara being endorsed as a Liberal candidate in last October's federal election, so 21st of October. On Friday, this past Friday, so day before yesterday, Mr. Trudeau did not deny the party was aware but refused to comment directly on what he knew and when he knew it. He stated as leader he is, quote, continually informed, end quote, about investigations and that there is a rigorous process in place. And that's from Global News. Now, does Justin Trudeau have to answer if he personally knew of allegations against Tabara? And what does the first female RCMP officer to alert Canadians to systemic sexual harassment within the RCMP think of the Prime Minister's responsibility? Does she believe organizations across Canada now steadfastly protect women against sexual harassment within the work environment? Catherine Galliford joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network in November 2011. She was a corporal in the RCMP, and she made Canadians aware 
of the fact that she was being sexually harassed, and then we found out it was a systemic issue uh, throughout the force. And it has not been an easy time for Ms. Galliford, but she has steadfastly uh, maintained her strength and her position, and she's done a lot for the people of Canada and for women in the workplace. Catherine, good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. In these, this is in, a, these dif- in these difficult times. They are. They are very, very difficult times. But we're still talking, and hopefully as we manage to communicate with one another, we can get things on an improving scale. Um, well, from my end, I can tell you I'm doing my best. I've still talked to police officers across the country, and I can tell you that they're still dealing with harassment on many different levels. And um, so I do know that the issues among first responders in the country um harassment is still a big part of it so that's within the within the police services i talk to uh people within police services not just within the rcmp but other police officers but i can tell you it is still um I i believe harassment is an umbrella issue and then there are different things that fall underneath harassment, so it becomes more um, targeted, like gender-based harassment, and then ra- racism. And um, if if you're not an alpha male, so but harassment overall is still a systemic issue within police forces. I wanted to ask you that, and and when when you hear about the case. As we're hearing now across the country, of uh, harassment of a woman in the workplace, and in the current case, it's where Prime Minister Trudeau didn't deny the Liberal Party was aware of harassment allegations against Marwan Tabara prior to last year's federal election, but then Trudeau refused to comment directly on what he knew or when he knew about it, but declared he's continually informed of any internal party investigations into harassment complaints by the Liberal Party. Does that sound familiar to you, Catherine? Uh, I, 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 I'm the one who gets the reports, but I can't really speak about it because it's essentially confidential. That sounds to me, and you and I have had many conversations, that sounds to me like some of the excuses we heard from the RCMP. Well... What I find is the general problem is the lack of accountability. And when people know something, when they're aware of something, and I've been guilty of it, I will put my hand up and say, have I seen, have I witnessed harassment or abuse of other people? Yes, I have. But my problem was I did not have anyone to go to. Um, I was not of a higher rank and i would consider um being a leader of a country or the leader of an organization um or a police force i would consider that person um would need to be held to the highest level of accountability and i i know that we use that excuse well, we can't comment. It's before the courts far too often, far too often. But it's allowed people to kind of hide behind what they know and what they can say. And myself, from way back in the day, I'm an ex-journalist. 
So I do know what can be said. I'm also an ex-cop, so I know what can be said, and I know what I can't say. And I think people are using that, well, we can't say anything because it's before the courts far too often. But it's almost kind of like an easy way out for them. Yeah. With, with, with Mr. Tabara, there was apparently uh, an investigation done by the Liberal Party prior to the election last year, and it went on, they vetted him, and it took longer than they usually, I understand, took le- longer than it usually takes, and then they uh, they went ahead and they signed the uh, the nomination papers, the Prime Minister signed the nomination papers, because it's usually the party leader who does that, and so Mr. Tavara ran for the Liberals and was elected, and then a couple of weeks ago, he was arrested and charged, and the police didn't say anything, and Tavara didn't say anything, and so most people didn't know about that aspect of it. But now we have a prime minister who will not admit whether he knew before the election of the allegations of harassment against the man whose nomination papers he signed, and he needs to do that because um, I need to be able to ask you, after all of your experiences, I need to be able to ask you whether you're confident Canadian workplaces are less likely to subject women to harassment than when you first publicly spoke out in November 2011. And the answer, Catherine, should be yes, but is it? No. What what you've seen since myself and and so many thousands of women have come forward um, is words on paper. That's all it is, and people coming out and giving sound bites, saying, "Oh no, we've changed, and uh, we're holding people accountable." And I have personally, I have not seen that. I have seen uh, people who aren't part of the old boys club um, having charges laid against them, but I don't. I don't really understand why people are covering up for this man, and because I've seen um, from my own experience um, as a female in the RCMP, and from my experience as a police officer. I know how difficult it is for women and men to come forward and complain about sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, being abused in the workplace and in general. Because, of course, I've had female um, and male um, sexual abuse victims come to me as a police officer. and. It's difficult. It's not easy. And so, and we, we obviously are trying to protect, um, um, I, I guess I want to say the survivor from too much publicity. Um, but I don't understand why, if, if, if our Prime Minister did know about the allegations against this person and as did the RCMP or whoever investigated him is pretty cut and dry what you can say and what you can't say. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really understand if, if the Prime Minister knew already about the allegations against him, he would be able to say that. He, yeah, could he would, and he should. That. And he has refused to do that. You, let's you and I agree to schedule a segment, a longer segment, where we talk about this issue again, 
And we'll get some other guests on as well as we have. We've done panel shows in the past. Um, and, and Catherine, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Always enjoy talking to you and, um, great to hear your voice again, but we'll set thank something you. up in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Take care of yourself. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Catherine Galliford, the former RCMP officer and the first uh, woman in the RCMP to, in 2011, uh, publicly disclosed that she was being sexually harassed and she really doesn't believe, as you heard, that the situation has improved significantly. And the Prime Minister needs to answer the questions and not reach for his lexicon of battle gab. Interesting week for the Conservative Party of Canada for the leadership race. Uh, two televised debates, and then there's the situation with the campaigns of Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay at each other, with Mr. O'Toole's campaign arguing or stating or accusing the McKay campaign of having stolen campaign information, and Mr. O'Toole wants the police to investigate, and Mr. McKay's campaign are laughing at the accusation. All right. I've had many requests to speak to my next guest, Dr. Leslin Lewis. She's also a Conservative Party leadership candidate, a Juris Doctorate, Osgood Hall Law School, and Ph.D. in law from Osgood Hall Law School again. Um, the quote from uh, Dr. Lewis is, I want to serve our country as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada because I see the opportunities that I had as a young woman being undermined even within our own party. Dr. Lewis, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Roy. Well, congratulations, firstly, on your successful professional life. And that leads me to ask, why would you decide to contest the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? Oh, you're not the first person to ask that. That's a very common question. But to be honest with you, it's, it's summarized in that quote that you, that you quoted at the beginning. And it's just, I see that there is a real opportunity to serve. I see that there's things in our parties that we have to refine and fix. And it kind of transcends also to the nation. There's there's a real unity gap with our within our nation. We're seeing a lot of regional discontent and provinces threatening to leave and and um, just issues that really really need to be resolved so that we can unite the country. And I think that it's even more so important with uh, you know just coming out of COVID that we have to make sure that we work together, building a strong economy and rebounding. If you have a list of uh, top three issues to accomplish, if you're elected leader of the party, before, before any federal election, just as leader of the party, what are they? Just w within the party, I think that we have to, you know, make sure that we have a uniformed understanding of what democracy is and that we respect each other's beliefs and values. And we recognize that we are a Big Ten party, so we have divergent beliefs. And we just have to make sure that we respect it. And we also, the second thing is also to make sure that we respect our membership base. And so they set basically the party policy and to make sure that we adhere to that and that we, um, that we act responsibly with their donations and that there's clear transparency and that they have trust in the system. And also within the party, making sure that we have free nominations and that people you know, trust the system that the mm -hmm. people who work the hardest and sign up the most members and that there's going to be fair fights, fair nomination battles, and, and that we just let them unfold. That is so important because the word trust and politics aren't often said in the same sentence uh, these days. Uh, so let me elevate you to Prime Minister of Canada. How would you deal with Quebec 
and a provincial government which refuses to accept the idea of a pipeline carrying Western Canadian oil through the province to New Brunswick refineries. How do you deal with Quebec? Well, the first question is that the rest of the country wants to know why, if if this is something that's going to uplift the entire country and it's going to be, you know, economically beneficial for the country and they will be getting equalization payments from that, why is it? So I'd like to sit down and, and speak to some of the leaders within the province and hear what some of their concerns are, hear what some of the, the root fears are with respect to this issue, and then try to find a resolution. But I think that we, we need to at least sit down and have open and honest conversations and, and try to get at some of those root fears. Yeah, absolutely. The conversation with Quebec is not always the easiest thing. As you know. Especially when you uh, don't know French that well. Well, how are you doing with that? Oh, well, you know, I just, I really just started. And because this campaign has been so intense and it's just been probably the most intense race of, in the history of, of our party, that, uh, you know, I haven't had a lot of time, but I try to get in an hour or two here or there. And it's, you know, over the last three months, it, I haven't been able to give as much time as I would have liked. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's coming it's, along, and it's something that I'm very dedicated to, and I'm working very hard at it. And as you can see, even, you know, having, I would say, probably around 23 hours worth of French lessons collectively, I still went ahead and did a debate. And yeah, good for you. I was... I'm quite proud of you for doing that because it's not an easy language to deal with. I lived there for 10 years recently and uh, I'm reasonably fluent, but it, it is a language that throws your curves. Uh, we're going to have to set aside more time to speak, uh, Dr. Lewis. We have about a minute here. Let me bring up the, the issue of race and racism in Canada. It deserves much more than that, but please just give us a, an encapsulated view of where we need to get to. Well, I think we have to just get to the point where we understand that Canadians are not racist and Canadians are good people and we live in the best country in the world but there are some problems within systems systems that you know um, when we look at the criminal justice system we know that there is a problem there uh, especially with First Nations people and and we see that um, also in the black community and also the education system and so we have to look at what these peculiarities are that's leading to these um, skewed outcomes such as you know okay. higher dropout rates in those uh, communities and so I think we need to work together at solving those will you come back for a longer period we can ask you more questions we can get into a better and longer conversation would that be okay oh yeah that would be great all right let me set it up with you with your with your staff good talking to you good first conversation thanks for the time today okay thank you so much take care all the best dr. Leslie Lewis who is a candidate for the conservative party leadership the officer may not use deadly force to prevent escape unless the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses an immediate threat. Paul Howard, the Fulton County District Attorney in Atlanta, on the uh, the death of Richard Brooks. Of course, in Atlanta, uh, Mr. Brooks did lose his life uh, a week ago, and police officers in several districts have been calling in sick now after former officer uh, Rolf was booked on 11 counts, including felony murder, in the shooting of Mr. Brooks, a 27-year-old black man. The interim Atlanta chief of police says the officers, uh, quote, says of the officers, and here's the quote, some are angry, some are confused, some are fearful. 
And uh, with us uh, to speak about this is Paige Pate, named to the list of super lawyers for the last 11 years, listed as one of the best lawyers by U.S. News, and uh, founding member of the Georgia Innocence Project. We've spoken with uh, Mr. Pate on a number of occasions. Paige, thank you very much for the time. And these are very, very uh, challenging times that we're living in. May I ask you first for your professional view of that interaction between the police officer and Mr. Brooks? How did you see that? Well, Roy, it's a tragic situation. And the way that I see it is, although it appears that the officers arrived on the scene without any intent to kill Mr. Brooks, I don't think they had any bad motives. By the time Officer Rolf actually shot him, I don't believe he had sufficient justification to do so. Uh, we know Mr. Brooks had resisted being arrested. We know he took the taser of the other officer and was trying to run away. And he even turned around and pointed the taser in, in Officer Rolf's direction and discharged it. But despite all of that, I don't think that Officer Rolf had reason to use deadly force and kill Mr. Brooks. And and they had Mr. Brooks' name. They had his uh, identification. They had the car. It's not as though he was going anywhere. <clears throat> That's exactly right. And, and remember, this was not the police investigating a violent crime, an armed robbery, or even some sort of a, a, a burglary or break-in. It was a possible DUI. I mean, the guy was just sleeping in his car. And under no set of circumstances should an unarmed man who's investigated for a DUI, potentially arrested for a DUI, end up dead. Paige, how does this happen? Why does it happen? Uh, why does this sort of uh, terrible interaction happen between police officers and and um, uh, people who are halted? Not everybody, obviously. These are these are not standard, uh, of, thankfully, uh, situations, but why do they happen? And we ask in Canada, we ask, why do they happen in the United States? Right. Well, unfortunately, we do have more than our fair share of these incidents, and it, and it seems now, and, and do understand this, although we have more media attention on these incidents now, they've always occurred here in the United States. The difference is that we didn't have video of the incidents. So what would happen in an excessive force case or an officer-involved shooting is the officer would simply say, look, you know, he was reaching for my weapon or I had reason to believe he had a deadly weapon. And you would just believe the officer's testimony. I mean, in the United States, officers are given a lot of discretion and they have a lot of credibility with prosecutors, judges, and juries. The difference now is we don't have to take the officer's word for what happened. We can all see it on video, and that's resulted in a lot of questions being asked about can we do things differently training the officers, uh, can we hold them accountable both criminally and, and civilly, um, but certainly as a result of these tragic incidents, we're going to see some changes here. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting we don't have situations like that in Canada. We have uh, some very disturbing police shootings that have taken place recently or police interaction with uh, citizens that have taken place recently that are demanding uh, answers, and uh, they hopefully will be arrived at. There are so many questions that we're dealing with uh, at, at this at this particular time. How would you describe the the mood in Atlanta today on this on this on this father's day? Well, it, it's calmer than it was last week. Um, you know, it, it's been several weeks of just constant turmoil, protests, violence. 
uh, it's something that this city has not experienced in, in decades. And, and even during the Civil Rights Movement, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, Atlanta was considered a peaceful city. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King was from there. He lived there. Um, you know, we, we were considered to be one of the least cities in the American South that got through that period with a lot less violence than other southern cities. But right now, there's so much attention focused on Atlanta, uh, a lot of um, just just anger, frustration, and a lack of patience for what has been considered to be an institutional problem with our law enforcement. One of the stories, and I mentioned it in the introduction, one of the stories that is uh, circulating around the world is what is happening as far as a lot of police officers calling in sick and uh, just not showing up for work. And uh, in some cases, from what I understand, and I, I'm not sure, I'm not there, but I've read that uh, some officers are not responding to certain calls. They're responding to some, but not to others. What's happening as far as the police are concerned themselves in Atlanta? And does that create an additional problem as far as security for the individual is concerned? Well, it could. And, you know, understand that just because I have the opinion that the shooting was not justified, that is not a universal opinion. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that, look, you know, Mr. Brooks um, ran away from the officers. You're not supposed to do that. He had a taser that he had taken from one of the officers. You're not supposed to do that. He shot the taser towards the officers. So, you know, in so many words, he got what he deserved. He started. It. And there are a lot of people who hold that opinion, including a lot of police officers. And right now, the police officers don't feel that the city leadership and certainly not the DA's office, our prosecutor, they don't feel that they have their back. They think that they've been abandoned and everybody's turning against them. And so their response is, well, I'm just not going to do my job. And that is creating some concern. Right now, it's not, it's not urgent. We still have police officers who are you know, at work and they're responding to calls. But um, I could see this getting, getting even worse than it is now. And not just Atlanta. No, right. Not just Atlanta. Not not at all, because this is one of those cases that it really depends on how you look at racial uh, justice and police officer accountability. You can see this incident one of two ways, and it's almost evenly split, at least in Atlanta. People who are of the opinion that it was a justified shooting and people who say this couldn't be, this is murder. And it's either one or the other, by the way. I don't think the other crimes really are relevant. He intended to kill Mr. Brooks. There's no question. The only question is whether it's justified. And ultimately, in Georgia, that's going to be up to a jury. As you look at the United States, at your country, um, how personally worried about you are you about what may yet happen in your city and beyond right across the United States. And I, I know that Rasmussen's done some polling. We're going to be talking to them shortly about that, where 34% of Americans believe that in, within the next five years uh, there will be a civil war in the United States. Well, I mean, I, I've never, you know, I'm 53 years old, um, so I didn't really, I was very young during the civil rights era. I wasn't even born during part of it. But I've never seen this country this polarized. Uh, obviously, um, it starts from the top. Um, our, our president is an extremely polarizing figure, and, and he seems to enjoy that role. And when you have so many protests and so many frustrated police officers and frustrated citizens, 
and everybody's coming together, and there's all these incidents that are giving the opportunity for more friction, more tension, more more things are going to break, and, and that's what concerns me. Uh, this is not going to be the only violent encounter between police and citizens, between black and white that's going to happen in this country this year. And so how we respond from here is going to really determine uh, if we're going to be able to, to make things better or things are going to get worse. Paige, thanks so much uh, for the time. I always appreciate speaking with you and uh, and probably today more than many other times. And I've always appreciated it. You've just given us a, a very good sense of what's happening in the city of Atlanta. Thanks again. Have a great day as best you can. Yes, Father's sir. Day, right? Thank you, Roy. Appreciate it. You too. Bye-bye. Paige Pate, he's one of the uh, top lawyers in the United States. Uh, U.S. Uh, News describes him as uh, one of the uh, foremost lawyers in the United States, and uh, he's also been named to the super lawyers for the last 11 years, and he's the uh, founding member of the Georgia Innocence Project, and that is a project where they make every attempt to find people who've been convicted of crime and who are innocent and prove them innocent and get them out of prison. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 